Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Well, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And the leaders of the Indiana Bicentennial Commission recently unveiled a kind of roadmap for the Hoosier State's next 100 years. It's called the Bicentennial, Bicentennial Visioning Project. And today that's going to be our topic on Noon Edition as we talk with three people who are very, were very involved in this process. One is Lee Hamilton, the former U.S. Congressman and Bicentennial Commission co-chair. Jesse Carbonda is here with us in the studio. He's the executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. And Peter Bering is joining us by phone. Peter is president of Bering Enterprises, and he worked on the public safety and homeland security chapter of the report. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, I want to thank all of our guests for being here, and I want to start with um, Congressman Hamilton, Lee Hamilton, um, co-chair of the Bicentennial Commission. So what was what was the thinking behind doing this, re- this particular report, the Visioning Project? Well, 200 years is a moment of celebration for this state. And the strong tendency is to look back because we've had a marvelous record in many ways. Uh, But uh, we thought on the Bicentennial Commission that it would be a mistake or a lost opportunity uh, not to look ahead. And then we uh, put our heads together and tried to figure out the best way to structure a uh, program where you would bring together leading Uh, forward-looking people in this state in a number of different areas and ask them to kind of unleash their minds, in effect, not think about the next year or two, but think about uh, 25, 50 years down the road, what should be the vision for Indiana, uh, the goals uh, that we ought to achieve. Uh, So we structured under the leadership of... uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Ellisburn, a uh, project which resulted in the Bicentennial Visioning Report. Mm -hmm. So I I noticed that it's a very long and very (laughs) in-depth report. And uh, there's there's just a ton of information in there and a ton of really good ideas. So were you satisfied with the end product? I was uh, very pleasantly surprised. And I think the credit for that uh, goes to Sue Elsperman. She is a uh, professional facilitator, whatever that may mean, but she's very, very good at drawing people out, uh, getting them to uh, articulate views and then summing up, uh, getting interaction among groups. And uh, so the process here, I think, was was a solid one, a good one. And it resulted in a report with a great deal of specificity uh, in a, a variety of areas. And I, I took, uh, I got quite a boost from it. Uh, this was a burst of good ideas that came to us. And uh, to put them in front of the uh, Hoosier leaders, I think is a significant project. It seems incredibly honest and blunt because there are things in here saying we've got a lot of ground to make up in health. We've RIFRA damaged us. How do we recover? Um, so given all all of that, I mean, who, who now carries the torch to say, let's do something about these things. Let, let's own that we've got ground to make up. Well, we got a lucky break there. The uh, Bicentennial Commission goes out of business here in a few months. Uh, But the Sagamore Institute has said they're going to pick it up and try to follow through on a number of these uh, visions 
ideas for the future. So there, we're going to have an organizational structure, private sector, uh, to carry out. Uh, we hope to help carry out. Now, this is a long-term project, and uh, it's been distributed to all kinds of Hoosier leaders. Uh, so we, we don't expect one, two, three, four, five recommendations to be approved in the next few years. But uh, we will have a structure, organizational structure, in place to follow through. Um, let's go to the phone. Let's go to Peter Bering next and just ask Peter for your sort of initial reaction to the report and uh, your part of the report. Well, I think that uh, we were challenged uh, to come up with big ideas. Uh, and really, it was a series of challenges, the first being who around the state of Indiana was a thought leader and not thinking by any specific discipline, but who were the, the real leaders in health care and in governance and uh, public safety and other disciplines, uh, 11 told uh, here in the final uh, report. Uh, and once those people were identified, then uh, Lieutenant Governor and uh, Congressman Hamilton both uh, issued a charge. And the charge was look at where we have come from, but more importantly, look ahead and think boldly, uh, remove the obstacles, uh, think in terms of what makes Indiana special uh, and what will make us successful uh, going forward. And uh, I think speaking for my colleagues who helped craft this document, uh, that uh, we've done a pretty solid job of meeting those challenges. And so now, Jesse Carbonda, who's in the studio, sort of same question. I just want to get you sort of on the record in your general, in general sense before we dig down a little, little deeper. Well, thanks for having me on, uh, Bob and Sarah. Uh, Three big things stand out in, in terms of the, reflecting on the experience. One is that a diverse group of stakeholders came together in each of these different groups. So in the environmental area, the private sector, government agencies, nonprofits, land trusts. Second big takeaway is that it was very well facilitated by uh, then-Lieutenant Governor Elsperman. And third, that there were some real big ideas that emerged from it. Some of them were affirmations of what uh, has been kind of the emerging consensus among these groups, but a couple of them were very big. And I think it gets back to this question that Sarah raised, that now who bears the torch? And I think part of it is the participants, but part of it is the law is lawmakers, and I hope we'll dig into that. So were lawmakers actively engaged in producing this document, too? No. 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 Well, I, ha I have to, to ask because I've seen, you know, the, the, the thing that I could draw a slight parallel to, although obviously these are different documents with different input, but the um, Kernan-Shepard report of a few years ago about government efficiency and that came up in uh, one of the one of the sections in here about how Indiana government needs to become more efficient but that was a very thoughtful very a uh, lot of participation in that document about how to streamline Indiana's government system and it really never took hold or not much of it has taken hold so you know what gives you uh, hope that this one will will actually have more impact than that particular project did. Lee. Well, well, at some time we're going to have to learn that uh, a structure put together in the 1800s doesn't work for the 21st century. And uh, streamlining government is one of the major themes of this report. Uh, I think the thing that really impressed me was the emphasis on regional hubs, uh, consolidation, merger, and, and uh, as a way to make our government more effective and efficient. Now, I uh, can appreciate the political difficulties here. Uh, we have a lot of uh, very strong interests of uh, folks who have uh, a solid uh, reason to support our county structure, 92 counties. 92 sheriffs, 92 county recorders, 92 this, that, and the other. Uh, so there's inertia here that's been hard to overcome over a period of many years. 
This report just adds impetus and I hope energy and strength to the idea that if we're going to be as good a state as we want to be, uh, we're going to have to reform the structure of our government as a major effort uh, necessary to go forward. Uh, who knows uh, whether that will be achieved or not. But Indiana cannot continue uh, to work out of an 18th century structure. We've got to improve. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to me. One of the things even mentioned here is gerrymandering. So I guess if, if you can talk about how do we how do we get to a place even where we can have a meaningful conversation about gerrymandering? Well, those conversations are taking place now, and there are a lot of organizations, or several at least, that are working to move towards a state commission uh, to draw the districts rather than letting the politicians draw the districts. They draw the districts uh, to suit themselves to assure their reelection. And the Democrats and the Republicans are uh, coordinated here because they both have an interest in protecting Democratic districts or Republican districts. Uh, so it's going to take a real push, and yet we see what has to be done. A number of states have already done it, setting up independent commissions to draw the lines. We've got to push Indiana policymakers in that direction. It's the only way, incidentally, that you get rid of this problem we have in politics today, and that's the absence of the center, uh, the absence of the moderate voter, the presence or uh, dominance of the extreme, um, both on the left and the right. And this is a key recommendation to try to move beyond that. Our phone numbers again, if you want to join us on this program and offer your thoughts about maybe where Indiana should go in the next 20, 30, 40 years, if not the next 200 years, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Jesse, from uh, your perspective, you know, I'm sure that you spend a lot of time in the area of, of environmental, our environmental future. What were some of the key takeaways that we should we should have from this report? Well, there were there were five overall recommendations. Two of them were cross-cutting in nature. One was about, which particularly excited me, is that the idea of creating an environmental jobs program, kind of modeled after the WPA or the CCE, CCC from the 1930s, that aims to get at-risk kids and and recently released ex-offenders. Um, out there in nature helping to rehabilitate uh, our, our natural areas. Another area was with respect to environmental education. How do we go about permeating environmental education across the curriculum, across a number of grades? You know, we certainly see specialized schools like Paramount and in Indianapolis doing that, but how do we permeate that culture so that more Hoosiers are making intentional conscience choices with respect to environmental stewardship? Those are two of the big ideas that emerged from our gathering. Now, Jesse, I was impressed with your, you recommended doubling the size of the state parks. You recommended establishing habitat corridors, which is a very important idea to get across in conservation. You put a lot of emphasis on water quality, I think one of the reports did. Uh, and we have compromised the quality of Indiana water far too much and we've got to get with it. We've got to begin to clean up our water. Jesse, can you add a little bit about the habitat corridors? Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting. I'm glad Congressman Hamilton raised this. Uh, there was an innovative undertaking that took place a few years ago called the Healthy Rivers Initiative, which honed in on how do we protect the habitat in some of our richest um, watersheds, the Wabash, the Sugar Creek, and the Miscatitoc. 
And the idea of this recommendation in this report that a number of different thought leaders contributed to on the environmental side was scaling this up statewide so that we create these unbroken links between all of our state parks and state forests to ultimately help not only wildlife, but to protect our waterways that are contributing to the, the Gulf um, of Mexico, a dead zone, and furthermore, again, facilitate more Hoosiers being out and getting exercise and dealing with our epidemic of obesity. If we had a map in front of us, how difficult would it, would it be to link all these state parks and state forests? Uh, that's a great question, you know, and I think we'll learn a lot from these two pilot projects in the Miscatatuck Bottoms and then the uh, the uh, Wabash Sugar Creek area. It'll take the cooperation of both uh, the state, the government, but also private easements. Uh, what you're really doing is trying to establish corridors where you diminish human activity of all kinds, cars, people, everything else, uh, to let the natural... Uh, habitation grow. Uh, not going to be easy. <laughs> You're not going to do it in one fell swoop. But this is a vision. This is a goal. And what we have to do is to get it into our thinking that uh, this has to be done to protect the environment of our state. Uh, and to let it flourish. Absolutely. And if I could just make one more quick point on that, I, I think there's so much at stake with respect to just the environmental piece of the visioning project, which is this, it's about um, Indiana making a quantum leap in terms of quality of life so that we're retaining the best talent, attracting the best talent, keeping our rural communities flourishing, and also in terms of uh, improving the health of, of kind of our most struggling families in the state, and then finally in terms of the jobs that will be drawn in by having a more um, higher quality of life. Which is interesting how interrelated many of these goals are when you're talking about increasing the public parks and how that then feeds into obesity. There's a lot of overlap, it seems. Absolutely. Um, one thing, when you were talking about water quality, it sort of raises this bigger question about natural resources. And as the population grows in Indiana, how are we going to meet that need? And, and how does the report address that? Peter, do you want to take a, a first crack at that? Well, I, I think that what we collectively have looked at is uh, how does Indiana do business and how do people live today versus how we've lived in the past and uh, make some educated predictions about where we are going to be in the future. Uh, certainly when the state was founded 200 years ago, uh, no one could have imagined what information technology would look like. Uh, yet, uh, one of the key recommendations is that we really need to expand broadband coverage in rural Indiana uh, because, in point of fact, not only does the state bear a huge responsibility in a transportation infrastructure, but we now have a data in an information infrastructure that is equally or, and, in some respects, more important. So as we look forward to uh, where the state is headed, uh, we have to recognize that how we live and how we are working uh, has fundamentally changed, and that has some big impacts and some big uh, significant uh, facts that we have to consider as we are looking toward the environment, the environmental stewardship, uh, and the overall quality of life. Uh, and uh, the, the, the uh, part of this is that I think we now know a great deal more about the environment than our forebears did 200 years ago. Uh, there were certainly anecdotal pieces that they understood that you didn't pollute the rivers and, and the streams, but we now have quite a bit of, of hard knowledge, uh, some of which we learned the hard way, uh, that tells us that uh, being environmental stewards is not just uh, good for the environment, but it's smart business and it makes us a stronger state. Sarah, I think that uh, the big thing here is you've got to sensitize people to the water problem in the state. Uh, I can remember uh, decades ago driving around behind water trucks where we ran out of water. These trucks would bring water into the communities. As a result of that, we began a real effort in the state to create reservoirs 
uh, to create uh, watershed programs. And we sensitized people to the fact that water was a finite resource and an absolutely essential one. Now we, we have to continue to do that, but we've also got to push put into the equation, be concerned about the quality of water as well. So this is a terrific idea in this report. It's broadly shared by a lot of groups and people in this country, in this state. But we can surely do better than what we're doing now in uh, compromising, polluting an awful lot of our water. Peter, before we uh, take a a break, I wanted to ask you also about, you you mentioned uh, technology and and big data. And, you know, once we start relying on all the technology, um, you know, there, there are dangers that come along with that. And you were part of the public safety and homeland security um, part of this report, uh, looking at, at those issues. You know, what what do we need to do? I mean, what are the what are the things that, that the report says about uh, about trying to prevent a crisis with with big data, uh, our technology, and also you know other points about how we protect ourselves and how we stay secure in the future. Well, certainly, uh, law enforcement and the public safety community uh, generally are following the trends of most of business and are taking advantage of the vast amounts of data that exist about everything. Uh, and at the same time, we recognize that uh, with all of this information come trade-offs. Uh, the convenience that comes from having all of this information and the improved effectiveness also carries with it some pretty significant risks. Uh, The reality is that in 2016, Google knows more about most of us than we know about ourselves. Uh, And uh, that comes with uh, a a tremendous increase in productivity and a tremendous increase in uh, convenience. Uh, But we also have to be mindful of the fact that, uh, uh, as uh, the Minority Report movie uh, starring Tom Cruise warned, uh, uh, that that there is the potential for a dystopian reality of uh, where we are getting too far out in front and are arresting people for thinking about crimes, which isn't uh, necessarily a criminal offense. Uh, so we have to look carefully at, at how we balance uh, this vast amount of data. And obviously, uh, there are also privacy concerns with how much information is held by who, what uh, is the government doing with this information, and all of the sorts of issues that we have wrestled with uh, in light of the, some of the leaks that have happened in the last few years. It, the report does call for this increased use of big data among law enforcement. So how does how does that work as a law enforcement policing strategy? Well, if you, you look, Indianapolis for, is the easy example where they have made some pretty terrific use of uh, the data that is collected on criminal activity and criminal patterns. And uh, that data is analyzed down to the zip code, and uh, anybody who's mailed a letter knows that the post office has subdivided zip codes into uh, one-block segments, uh, and the data is able to be parsed down to that kind of, of detail. Uh, what law enforcement is now able to do is they're able to statistically pattern this information and deploy law enforcement resources, whether those are patrol assets, whether those are investigative resources, and target specific types of crime based on geography, time of day, time of year, and those sorts of things. What Peter, uh, what Peter is saying is really very important. Everybody's concerned about terrorism today. The data that we're now putting together with regard to the activities and the targets of terrorists is really impressive. And it is greatly strengthening our ability to find out who these guys are, what their habits are, where they congregate, what their thoughts are, what their targets are. Now, what we have not yet been able to do is to predict where they're going to strike. 
But as you gather more data, you're going to get closer to that goal, mm -hmm. and it will become a very big element in the prevention of terrorist attacks. We're going to have to take a short break. We're uh, talking about the, Bloom or the Bicentennial Visioning Project. We're basically looking into our crystal ball about the next uh, 20, 30, 40 years and what we want the state of Indiana to be. If you want to join us in the second half of the show, please do give us a call, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, and Sarah Whitmire is also here, and we're talking about the Bicentennial Visioning Project with three of the people who worked on it, including Lee Hamilton, our former congressman, and the Bicentennial Commission co-chair, who's here in the studio, as is Jesse Carbonda, the executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, and joining us by phone today is Peter Beering, the president of Beering Enterprises, who worked on the public safety and homeland security chapter of the report. If you want to give us a call and talk about um, what, some of the things we've been talking about and, and some of your visions for Indiana, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. When we uh, were on the break, um, Lee Hamilton made, made the point that, you know, we start with a pretty good state. And then we, we sort of go from there. So, Lee, do you want to expand on that? <laughs> well, sometimes I have the feeling when we're talking as we are, we're just coming across a little too negatively. Uh, we see a lot of problems that got to be addressed, and we tend to emphasize the problems. But I think it's also a theme of this report that there is optimism about the future, uh, that there's a sense of hope here that we have a very good state. We're proud of this state. We have a marvelous heritage that we, over 200 years, we are today a good state, but we all recognize that in all of these areas, we can do much better. So I think that context is important in, in the visioning re report. So the next generation, talking about youth and education is one that we really haven't touched on yet. Um, one of the things that was in here was this inclusion of a Children's Bill of Rights. Um, I don't know who would be best, but to expand on that and what would be in a Children's Bill of Rights. Well, look, we got a big problem in this state, and one of the problems is we've got a lot of children, a sizable percentage of our children who just lack opportunities, uh, who have food insecurity who do not have good moral guidance, uh, who do not have good health care, who don't go to the dentist regularly. And we've got to pay more attention to these children and try to lift them up. Now, one of the ways to do that is with a children's passport, in which you have a, a document, in effect, for every child, and you, uh, you, 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 you try to understand that child's problems. And you make sure that the system, the organizations that we now have that work for the welfare of children are coordinated and uh, together in their efforts to help these children. A, child, a, ch a ch child's passport is a means of calling attention 
uh, to individual children and their needs. It's one way to do it and an important way to get uh, services to the child who needs them. And that would follow them potentially through school if they were with DCS or? Follow them all the way. You, you pick up that. Think what a terrific asset that would be to a teacher, for example, to have a passport on every child in their class. Uh, and think what a terrific help it would be to organizations that are seeking to deal with autistic children or, or what, whatever the disability might be. They, they could target immediately the persons that need help. Uh, so that's a, a technique, a means of trying to facilitate the flow of services to these children. And I was I was going to say that uh, <clears throat> I think uh, an increased emphasis on environmental stewardship is will be of great service to those to those kids. I'm thinking about how, you know, the the research has shown us how kids being out in nature uh, improves their mental health, and that deals with the fact that you know we have we're in the top ten in, in suicide attempts in in uh, in the United States uh, for kids. And teens, and we're dealing with an obesity epidemic, and again, that accessibility to nature is critical there. I'd also emphasize this issue that there's this growing consensus around STEM education, and what a fantastic vehicle for learning science and math and so forth by being out in nature and, and kind of learning those concepts in a hands-on way. I want to ask Steve to comment on this first, but I'm just to take it a, another, or not, <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter, <laughs> uh, take it another step uh, Further, the report talks about making high-quality kindergarten and pre-K available to a much greater number of people as well. I mean, how, what's the importance of that, you see? Well, I think that if you look at the foundation of what makes this a great state, it's the next generation. And there's a, were a number of recurring themes throughout this report, and one of them is that we really do need to pay attention uh, to the, the next generation, and that looks like uh, improving health care, improving access to education, uh, improving, uh, in, to the extent that we can, getting rid of food insecurity. Uh, identifying major threats and issues to uh, young people much earlier than we are and providing everybody in the system, whether it's uh, government, teachers, parents, uh, meaningful tools to be able to deal with that. Uh, We are blessed that we know quite a little bit more about the world that we live in today than our uh, predecessors did. Uh, But our challenge is that there are only so many minutes in every day, there are only so many dollars, and we need to look holistically at many of these issues uh, and recognize that we really are uh, focused uh, very correctly, in my view, uh, on the next generation and the generation that comes uh, after that. All right, we have a phone call, so let's go to uh, Stan from Bloomington. Stan? Hi. Uh, well, I, was, I wanted to follow up on Mr. Hamilton's comment about a children's passport, and I wondered whether there's any uh, thought that, that we can establish a statewide single-payer system for the health care of children in this state. Is that feasible at all? Uh, That's an issue that is immediately before the policymakers. How do you deliver health care? The single-payer system uh, obviously is one way to do it. There are other ways to do it. This visioning report really is not a policy report, and we didn't get into these policy discussions, particularly policies that are immediately on the agenda in the the state today. Uh, So we don't examine the pros and the cons of different approaches to delivering health care services in this report. There is a good bit of emphasis, however, here on health and uh, some new ideas, I think, that need to be considered. For example, uh, we see recommended in this report that we develop here a new class of health care providers 
Uh, we've relied a lot on volunteer help here in our state's history. We're improving uh, the delivery of healthcare services, but one of the ways to do it that we ought to think about in the future is to develop professional healthcare providers, not physicians, not nurses, but uh, uh, something less than that, but still uh, important uh, qualifications for it. I just want to, to follow up and Stan, I, I, you can stay there for a second, but, uh, you know, Lee, you've been in, in a position where you were able to write legislation and, and try to create policy. And it, it looks like if you look at this visioning document and a lot of the things we've talked about today, it is ripe for legislators to take a piece of this or um, a, a group of legislators and say, we need a policy statement and I'm going to create a bill that's going to yeah. try to push this through. Is that what you see? Yes, I do. I very much hope that's one of the things that happened here, that this lands, uh, this report lands on the desk of the legislator or the governor or any people in the departments of Indiana uh, government. They take a look at it. They're going to reject some of it. They're going to like some of it. They're not going to like some other things probably. But I hope they'll see something in there they can run with mm -hmm. and move us forward. Jesse, from your standpoint, because you've been involved in trying to push legislative agenda, uh, the legislative agenda in terms of the environment, do you see some um, ideas in there that you'd like to work on? Oh, certainly, Bob. I, uh, just in general, I, I really hope that given how intentional it was on the part of Lieutenant Governor and the other honorary co-chairs to bring together these diverse stakeholders, there's a lot of synthesis of great facts and great ideas. And I think that we need to be really intentional about getting this before lawmakers, maybe right after Organization Day or on Organization Day, uh, maybe in the run-up to the legislative session, maybe during the legislative session, do those briefings, and then uh, lean on, on, on volunteers like, like myself and others to go out and meet with lawmakers one-to-one -one and just bring this issue to their attention. They're di they're deluged with <laughs> lots of books and briefing papers, and I think there needs to be a lot of in-person engagement. I Stan think the report has already been sent to all the legislators, for example. Stan, I'd l like to just point out to you before we let you go that you can go online and find this report if you just um, really, if you just look for, through a search engine for the the uh, Bicentennial Visioning Project, you can find it. And one of the things that is really impressive about it uh, is all the maps, all the data, all the appendices at the end is just full of information about where the state is right now and gives helps with that roadmap of where the state should be going. So thanks for your call, Stan. Uh, we have another Thank caller. You. Yeah, we have another caller. We're going to go straight to Harriet from Franklin. Harriet? Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about... Um a nature park, uh, it's a city park out on the east side of Indianapolis, and the whole focus is uh, getting children outside. Um, and I've talked with the management, and if you cannot get them to put down their electronic devices and get off the couch and get outside, um, we're going to have a generation of people who have no appreciation for um, the environment whatsoever. And um, so I don't know what the commission is going to do about that, but I hope something comes out of um, these meetings um, that, that is focused on getting those children outside. Th thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, that's, that's a wonderful uh, point raised by Harriet. I mean, I would just say that uh, I was just reflecting on this report and particularly the environmental piece and just um, kind of celebrating the fact that we have such a diverse set of uh, professional resources to uh, to support kids and to support teachers. Um, you know, we've got soil and water conservation districts, recycling districts. We've got county parks, city parks, state parks. All those professionals can um, make a more concerted effort, maybe in, in commemoration of the fact that we're at 200 years, to go out to schools and to help influence curricula so that those kids are spending more time in nature. I'm going to give our phone numbers again because we have uh, about 12 or 14 minutes to go. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can reach us or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Another challenge that was identified in the report is this idea of retaining this talent once we've 
once we've trained these students and they've gone through the education system in Indiana, how do we keep them here so that then they fill jobs and better the economy? Jesse, do you want to pick that one up? Sure. And I, you know, I, I'm obviously going to be harping on the environmental theme here, but I think it's so relevant to this this next century of Indiana that, uh, you know, CEOs for Cities has done some incredible research showing that so, somewhere on the order of 70% of young professionals are deciding where to live before they're actually seeking out a job, uh, uh, before they actually obtain a job. And so positioning Indiana in such a way that it overcomes something of the perception that it's possibly a little bit dirty because it has a very robust industrial sector and agricultural sector. Um, Overcoming that by creating an even better park system, a better funded park system, making sure that we've got bikeways and walkways in every community. Those are really important pieces to retaining talent and attracting talent. And Peter, what what are your thoughts in terms of the way that we can keep these folks from moving out of the state? Well, I think that this goes part and parcel with the uh, arts, leisure, and culture uh, focus group uh, that looked uh, at the history of Indiana and art, uh, music, culture, and uh, all of the things that make this a terrific place to live. Uh, You know, we've got a a phenomenal uh, history with uh, world-known artists, both of visual media, uh, performance media. Uh, We've made many, many contributions over the course of time to uh, performed things, uh, whether that's music, whether that's theater. Uh, And all of those are the things that make, uh, that contribute to uh, the quality of life here. Uh, Certainly throughout Indiana, we have great opportunities for people to engage with the arts. Uh, And we know, uh, because study after study after study has shown that uh, communities that support the arts and who are engaged with the arts are uh, much happier and much more prosperous uh, in the big picture analysis than those who are not. And uh, that's a, a key ingredient to attracting and retaining talent uh, along with uh, the recreational and uh, environmental kinds of amenities that are also here in the state. Sarah, if I may add here, uh, <clears throat> you've got to make Indiana an attractive place to live. These people we want to bring into our state or retain them here are able people, they're capable people, they're smart people. They're going to go where the life quality is good and we have to attract them to Indiana's way of life. Now, let me give you one part of this. The great, one of the great problems in our state is the lack of attractiveness in the rural areas. You have all kinds of opportunities in Bloomington, Indiana, all kinds of opportunities in Indianapolis and Evansville, the urban centers. You have a large number of our people in this state who live in rural areas where the opportunities are very limited. How do you deal with that problem? Well, it's a very complex matter, not easily done. But one way to deal with it is to link the rural areas with the urban areas so that, for example, Indianapolis and Brown County uh, merge on a lot of activities to make life better in these communities. And Indianapolis can be a huge help to Brown County, but Brown County can also be a big help to Indianapolis because they want space. They want outdoors and so forth. So quality of life, as uh, Peter said, is absolutely critical. And we have to see ourselves in a competition here. We're competing with other states and uh, areas of the country, and some of them have a lot to brag about. Uh, so if Indiana is going to move forward in the years ahead, if we have any chance of achieving some of these ideas put out here, we're going to have to do, as you suggest, attract young people, and we have to improve the quality of life and make this state more attractive in all kinds of ways, in healthcare, in education, in architecture, in arts, in culture, all kinds of things that go together to make up a good life. And I might note there is uh, an entire chapter in here devoted to agriculture and rural affairs, so it's yeah. definitely uh, been given a lot of attention by, by the report. We have another caller on the phone. It's Sandy from Bloomington. Sandy? 
Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to just say thank you to uh, Lee Hamilton for still being willing to serve the public and continuing to inspire. Uh, he came to my high school in the 70s and was uh, inspirational then, and he's still out here working, and I just really appreciate it. My question is, what role is the faith community playing as we develop this vision for our state? And um, I would just like to invite the faith community to just focus on building hope for people. We're, we're never going to agree on doctrine. We're always going to have certain uh, biases and understanding. But if we just focus on building hope, especially for youth who are inundated with things that invite despair. And, you know, in the absence of hope, people are likely to seek distraction like video games and substance abuse and that sort of thing. So I think if we could just recognize that hope inspires greatness, then we could uh, do a lot towards healing our state and uh, creating uh, greatness in the future. Thank you. I should thank Sandy for her nice comments. I appreciate them very much. Uh, she raises, I think, a terribly important matter. The, the faith community is absolutely essential to helping us elevate ethical standards in this state. Uh, in, uh, everything we do in the private and the public sectors. And I know there are great differences in doctrine. As you say, we're not going to resolve those. But all of these faith communities believe that ethical standards are very important. And that's the message I'd like to see them emphasize uh, very much. And always keep ethical standards front and center as we try to move the country forward. Now, uh, she also mentions uh, hope. Uh, I can remember Jesse Jackson <laughs> some years ago, every speech he'd end, a lot of people didn't agree with Jesse Jackson. <laughs> every speech he'd end would say, keep hope alive. Hmm. Let me give you a quick antidote. I gave a speech not long ago in Iowa. I thought it was a great speech. Uh, at the end of the speech, a nice young lady came up, said, Congressman, that was a great speech. Uh, and, of course, I got all puffed up. And then she said with a question that uh, I cannot forget, is there any hope? And I recognized that my speech was a total failure <laughs> because I had not addressed what uh, Sandy's talking about. Keep hope alive. Keep the aspirations in front of people. One of the most important things you can do in the educational process when you go into that classroom is to let children know that they can aspire to greater things and that hope is alive. Sandy, I also want to mention uh, the there's a religion portion of this report as well. Jesse or uh, Peter, either one of you want to address this? Sure, absolutely. Well, no. uh, I was just going to say that, you know, for me, part of the context in thinking about how important the faith community is in our state is thinking about the reality that real income is declined for uh, a good portion of, of our population. It leads to hurting, and part of that leads, leads people to make wrong choices in terms of, of drug use and so forth. And the faith community can play a tremendous role in and supplementing uh, the efforts of government and amplifying them in terms of supporting those uh, families to heal and rebuild. And uh, one of the most moving aspects of, of the religion chapter to me was this notion that, as Congressman Hamilton said, while these faith groups can't necessarily unite on doctrine, they can unite on values. And right. people of different faiths can come together and I, I thought of a beautiful, beautiful concept was building towards the idea of actually working in a common workspace and pulling together their great talents to actually serve these communities in a more effective way. Peter? Well, and I, I, I think that uh, they are working actively to do just that, where they're not getting hung up on the doctrine. They're looking at ways to bridge interfaith gaps. Uh, they're looking to create uh, understanding uh, across 
denominations and across the broader faith community, uh, and looking not at fussing over one interpretation or the other of a doctrine, but rather in uh, how do we further the greater good of all, uh, all the while be serving as the moral compass uh, for life here in Indiana. And uh, there have been some, some really very uh, successful initiatives uh, from what might have been some surprising uh, initiatives uh, from apparently disparate uh, groups uh, within the faith community. Okay, we only have about a minute to go, and I'm going to give that minute to Lee Hamilton, the co-chair, because he was the co-chair of this, uh, the, is the co-chair of the Bicentennial Committee. So, Lee, just last thoughts about uh, the work of the Visioning, uh, the Visioning Project and what you hope will happen with it. Well, I think Sue Elsberman and I both feel, we all, both of us have worked on a lot of different projects, but we really feel that this report can have potentially a very positive impact on the the development of our state over a period of decades and years. Uh, This is an important document, uh, is the way I would sum it up. I hope it gets a lot of attention from the press, Bob, Mm -hmm. your colleagues, but not just that. I hope it goes into the schools. I hope it goes all through government. I hope it goes into the private foundations which do such terrific work in our state and get people to thinking about how we can make a great state better. All right. Thank you very much to Lee Hamilton, Jesse Carbonda, and Peter Bering for being here with us today. For producer Sophia Salaby, welcome back, Sophia. Engineer Mike Pashkash and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.